This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, this episode of Enough About Me on a typically wild uh, Thursday in Kirk Minahanville uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> is uh, with Jan Broberg, who is the subject, the lead character, really, the the of Abducted in Plain Sight, which is the wild Netflix documentary that was a cultural phenomenon for about three weeks at the beginning of the year. Her story is incredible. I'll lay it out here for you before uh, we have her on. I've already talked to her. We talked to her for about an hour. Um, and it was really good. She's, I mean, her, her personality is, is incredible when you talk to this person, which she's been through. Her next-door neighbor molested her, kidnapped her twice, raped her time after time after time, uh, then got new physical relationships with both her parents, her mother and father, uh, and stalked her late in, late in her later in her life as well before he eventually died. Um, just a crazy story. When you watch a documentary, your mind is blown away. You know, a couple of times in particular, it's just it's the it's the wildest ride you'll ever go on. It's 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 crazy. I mean, I just laid out there is crazy. But when you get into the fact that she believed that there was an alien and, and following them around and that she had to have sex with this neighbor B to have his name in, in the movie, they call him B um, to keep the human population alive or her parents will die and her sisters will die. She's 12 years old. This guy mind fucks her like crazy. This monster. Um, and she goes on. She perseveres and lives this incredible life now where she's an actress. She has a book coming out. She's all over television. She still loves her her mom. Her dad passed away last year. She had a great relationship with them. I think it's somebody like me who is resentful and angry and pissed off. And I see someone like her and I think maybe I should just let it slide once in a while. I mean, she is an, an incredible story. When her book comes out, we'll talk to her again. We talked for over an hour about the documentary. I could have talked to her for 10 hours. I have so many questions about this documentary, but I did the best I could with about an hour uh, time limit here with Jan Broberg on Enough About Me. Yeah, so I'm here on a Thursday afternoon with Jan Broberg, who is slumming now on this podcast after being the star of Dr. Oz, taking over <laughs> uh, television for, what, 25 segments, you said? It's a whole, uh, whole week worth of programming well, now. You go on there and steal the show. Is that what happened? I guess so. I, I think people get so enthralled with the story, and then they really come to understand how important it is that we that we actually do tell it more fully than even the documentary could, because it's all about that grooming and manipulation that people don't understand, and that's the only way we're going to make a difference and an impact is if they really start to, to see how it applies to their own lives, and that's what happened today with Dr. Oz. It was awesome. I'm try- I'm, so I'm trying to work through. So I saw <clears throat> the podcast. I'm sorry, the podcast. Jesus. The documentary. Basically, when everybody else did. So it came, it got re-released on Netflix, abducted in plain sight, and it took over Twitter for two or three days. And I had this, I can only imagine what it was like for you when this thing became, you know, whatever, say a month, month and a half ago, this massive phenomenon. I, I can't even imagine how you reconcile with, with that happening. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. I mean, you don't expect that to happen. I've, I've been, you know, telling my story to small groups of 
you know, book club ladies to, you know, police departments and just anybody that asked because they told me it would make a difference. And, and then all of a sudden you get this documentary out there and it goes to Netflix and it goes crazy. And you're like, oh, my gosh, people are actually talking about this subject where, you know, 20 years ago, nobody wanted to talk about, you know, the sexual abuse of children and how it happens under your nose from people that you know. You know, they don't they don't want to talk about it. And now it's the right time. And it just, it did, it kind of floored me. It was like overwhelming. The first three weeks, I was like, why did I do this? My poor parents, I love them. Right. Right. <laughs> this is the legacy. You know, I was just like mortified. But then my mom, my father passed away in November. Yeah, I saw them. Sorry, so to, I'm had, sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But my mom was the one who actually said, you know what, sweetie, we, we told everything because we thought it would help someone. And if they're talking, even if they're mad at us, it doesn't matter. It's making people talk and share things that they otherwise wouldn't have. And that is the beginning of healing for a, a victim, and it is also the beginning of changing this this horrible thing that lives in the dark shadows of our families, of our congregations, of our communities, of our schools. And she said that's the only way that it's going to happen is people have to to vent. I don't care if people are mad at me. Great, they're talking, and that's where it's all going to start. That's why this beautiful gem of podcasting that has become so important is like, this is because people are talking, and because people are listening and hearing it, it's helping for the future to change, to something will change because of this. I'm going to guess, I don't know this, I'm going to guess, and I hate to ask the question that gets asked the most, but I'm going to guess the question that gets asked the most is, how do you not hate your parents, right? Yeah, it does get asked a lot. I mean, some form or fashion, I I mean. Yeah, I can answer that pretty easily. I had 12 perfect childhood years. I grew up with two parents who loved me and my sisters unconditionally. We ate dinner together around the dinner table every night. There were no electronics. We talked, and we communicated. And so because I had those as my first 12 years of life, and because then I went on to study how grooming manipulation happens to not just the child, but to the entire family, I had terms. In my early 20s, I went through a period of time where I was angry. I was like, why didn't you see this? How could you have done that? I went through those emotions. I did. I had those feelings. But because my parents just, again, listened, accepted what I had, what I was feeling, acknowledged the mistakes that they made said, I don't know why we were so stupid and why we didn't see it, but we didn't. And then I knew in my late 20s a lot more about how grooming works. And you have to remember, this is almost three years that this man and his family had become our best friends. We've done hundreds of things with this family. And it's not until three years later that the little 12-year-old Jan wakes up in the back of a moving motorhome with her, with her wrists and ankles strapped to a bed with this box playing in her ear in this high-pitched monotone staccato voice calling her female companion you have a mission to save this dying planet this alien planet right and i'd already been groomed and so i now could see later in my life how my parents were groomed i could see why they made the mistakes that they did because most people in the world have made a mistake that they don't want the whole world to know about But then when you add a layer of not only did I make that mistake, but now this guy was a master manipulator looking for my, the one moment where I could, where I could get this person to do something 
that I could then hold against them, that I could sure. blackmail them with down I guess, the road. But I'm sorry, Jim. But I guess intellectually, right? So I have a 12-year-old daughter now, and I have a, a yeah. six-year-old son. And intell- when I watch it, I think I have the same reaction everyone else does. Like I understand, yeah. and, and I think, and we can get to what was left out a documentary in a moment, but the idea yeah. that you know a neighbor would come by, no matter how well I know them, and sleep next to my daughter for four hours a night for a couple of years, or take her away to Mexico and marry her, and then carry on an affair with this person, both parents, I mean, you, you must understand, if, 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 if you go in knowing nothing, and that's what you see, your mind is blown. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And like you said, there are things that are left out of the documentary. But again, if, if you can imagine your best friend, or your brother, or your you have to imagine the person closest to you that you trust. Like, if I die, yep. we're going to sign papers so that you raise my kids. That's who this man was to our family. That's how this whole family was to our family. We all had a best friend. And so he didn't sleep under the covers in my bed. He came with these therapy tapes saying to my, my parents, that I went and saw this, this therapist in Beverly Hills. They're trying to help me overcome my, my depression and my, you know, I, I went through some abuse as a kid, and I'm supposed to lay by a child that's about my same age. And today on the Dr. Oz Show, he told me about a therapy. He, he had a name for it. He goes, I know exactly what therapy they use, and this is the name of it, back in the 70s, where it's called association therapy, something like that, where you would, you would lay by, uh, which I know today we're all screaming our heads off it wouldn't happen this was the 1970s this is before we even have child abuse laws established in every state and it just passed through our federal government to have child abuse laws i mean we didn't even have them adopted in the states in each state what that meant to have a we didn't know what a pedophile was so he's listening to these tapes my mom's in and out of the door of the bedroom, putting the laundry away, doing the ironing, and it wasn't four hours, and he wasn't under the covers. He was laying by me with these tapes on his head, and I never remember him ever touching me or molesting me at that point. Like I said, for me, the abuse started the day I woke up in the back of a moving motorhome and thought we had both been kidnapped by a UFO and had this mission that we were supposed to do. And, I mean, it's just, I I know it's all mind-blowing with my parents, but when you read the book, like our book is coming out, Yep. When you read the book, then you can fill in all those gaps of, oh, I can see how this happens. Oh, I remember somebody in my life that I finally figured out the guy I was dating was actually after my daughter, or at least I suspected it. He wasn't actually, it wasn't sincere, all of his attention to me. Most people who have been through some period of time been conned or been mm-hmm. so infatuated with somebody they couldn't see anything wrong with them and then got into a relationship and realized they were they were not who they seemed to be can relate to how it happened, but... It's really hard to put yourself in that place because you want to believe. You want to believe. Like you, like you that I'm talking to, right. this man on the other end of the phone <laughs> right. wants to believe that I would see it and I would stop it and I would know what to do. And that's, that's what everybody wants to believe. But it's not true. We had 800,000 reported cases of child oh, sure. abuse in this country last year. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. Those are just the reported ones. We're, this, not, we're not any smarter This is this, 2019. This is probably a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it. Can you okay. can you watch if you see TV shows now where there was a period in your life where you're watching a TV show and say a UFO or an alien was in it would it screw you up or was it did, oh yeah was, or if you looked outside yeah, there and you was saw definitely a, a long time in my life where I could not handle those kinds of things I walked around my car I looked under my car I looked in my back seat I looked behind doors when I'd walk into a new room I mean I had I had definitely um, residual effects of fear and 
and scared, even though I knew it wasn't real. I knew it wasn't true, but it was like, even if it wasn't an alien, and I wasn't really looking for an alien anymore, it was just how it would drum up that, that just that, that terror that I felt when I heard that voice. And from the first time I heard it, that was the scariest part about the whole thing, even scarier than all of the abuse. It, it was that voice because I knew I had to do whatever they said, and it was very scary. What role do you think religion played in this whole thing? Well, I think, I think this is what I think about any kind of hierarchy where you're, you're basically instructed or, or you think that you can trust people. <laughs> you know, you're sure. supposed to be able to walk into a Girl Scout meeting and trust those people, and you're supposed to be able to walk into your church and trust those people that are talking from the pulpit or that are teaching your Sunday school class. I mean, that, we, we do it all the time in all sorts of different ways. There's this hierarchy of leadership and of trust that's already built in. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. It doesn't matter what the organization is. You know, if it's sitting by your friends at a Rotary Club meeting, you feel this level of trust. But you really don't know them. You don't know if there's 10 pedophiles in the room. You have no idea. And so I think in any sort of structured organization, and I'm not, I didn't mean to diss on the Rotary Club. My dad was a Rotarian forever. It was it's a okay. great thing. Yeah. Just like every church, I think, has good parts of it. But mm-hmm. I think when you give over your um what is it your trust so easily and you're not first of all going to 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 see that somebody is not trustworthy because your first line of defense is to trust them because they're in that leadership role that's the mistake that we make for ourselves as well as for our kids we don't ask kids to find facts or to think for themselves or be curious or, you know, disagree with your church leaders or your community leaders or your political leaders. We don't do that. We teach people to believe them instead of actually looking at what are they actually doing? What are they actually saying? Did I notice that his hand was on my daughter's back five seconds too long? And if I did, why didn't I give it merit? Why did I just immediately dismiss it? Because the guy's a Sunday school teacher or the guy's the Boy Scout leader, or the guy is this, or the woman. I just heard a story the other day about a school teacher, second grade school teacher. She built monkey bars in her classroom so that she could easily fondle right, her I saw students. That. Yeah, she was yeah. the favorite teacher in the school. Sure. And, you know, it's like, we're, it's just built in to that, to any kind of a structured religious. Uh, of course, it plays a part because you're already teaching, um, you know, faith and belief and all of those things, which on the one hand was very important for my healing, to know that there was a bigger picture, a bigger purpose, a bigger plan, a bigger higher power. That all played a very important role in my healing. It also played a role when a master manipulator who's hiding in plain sight, who's your Sunday school teacher, can take any kind of a teaching from, from, you know, whatever it is, the most basic, and twist it enough for a little 12-year-old to really believe that she's now the new Mary on the planet that's supposed to have the, the baby that's going to save the planet. That was what basically that story was. It was my mom was my biological mom. My dad was not my biological dad. I was fathered by a being from this other planet, right. and I was born to have the Savior that would save their planet. And this scary, I mean, and this, and you were, and you were convinced of this. Times, right? You were, yeah, yeah, exactly. You were convinced of this for years, though. Oh yeah, four years. Right. Oh, yeah, I never doubted. I mean, every day. I mean, this is this. Me. So this every is your day. life every day, going to school, hanging yep. out. I mean, this was this was in your brain twenty four hours. It had to have been twenty four hours a day for four years. Yep, it was. 
unbelievable. And I constantly thought I was being watched. I thought they could read my mind. And it was just so, it was so brilliant, I guess you can call it, if you, if you want to give the, the pedophile a compliment. It was brilliant because it's the kind of story that once a child believes that and they really do think they're being watched, you don't even dare have a thought that might help you see through it. It's, it's, it's classic brainwashing, and it happens all the time, whether it's an abused woman who's being told nobody else will want you, you'll never be able to support yourself, mm-hmm. you, you know, whatever it is that you now believe that doesn't allow you to leave the abuse or to look at it from a different perspective, it, it happens everywhere all the time. When did you, did you... In my case, it's crazy. Did you go to therapy? I might, might be a dumb question. I did. When did you start, when did you start going? Um, I started going, well, I was court-ordered to go, and of course, I never told the therapist anything. Right, you, right. Um, you know, that, isn't, that wasn't Right, it. isn't an adult, I guess really I mean. In my, early, in my early 20s, when I finally got to college, you know, I had finally figured out that it wasn't real, told my sister, my best friend, Caroline, and then they had me, you know, tell my mom and dad, but I didn't talk very much in depth about the icky stuff. I just called it icky stuff. There was mm-hmm. icky stuff, you know. didn't talk about the abuse very much. Um, in detail until I was in my early 20s and writing a life history for an English class in college. And at that point, that's when all those feelings came out, and I kept calling my parents, and I was so angry with, you know, the fact that they didn't see this or that they did that. And, and I went through those emotions, and it was then that, that they helped me find a, a therapist, and I, and I talked to a counselor for, you know, over the course of about six months, and that was really good. And then about age 30, so later in my 20s, I had another therapist, and then um, in my 30s, early 30s, I I went to a like a workshop with Landmark Education. It was called the Forum. That really helped me, like, kind of put my abuse like over there, so I could look at it and I could learn from it. And I could help somebody, but it wasn't running my life anymore. That was really helpful. And then I read some amazing books. I watched Oprah every day, and I'm not kidding. Things like that sound so like. Really, that made a difference? I'm like, yeah, really, it made a difference because somebody's saying the words out loud. You know, somebody's talking the words that, that for so many years nobody even knew what they were or how to, how to say it. And it was just all those things were important in my own healing to get to this point. And it didn't come, you know, I'm not, I'm not in my 20s. I don't think people heal that fast. I think it takes it takes stages of life to happen and then for you to face what's there when you get married for the first time and then what's there when you go through a divorce and what's there when you have a child. It, it, you know, what happened to you plays a part in how you process and do those things in your life. And so there's pieces of healing that happen through every stage of your life if you're seeking them out. But I do want people to know that they can get help and they can be healed and they can live a happy, productive life and make a difference for others. And that's important to me that that's part of the message. I don't want everybody to just run out of the room screaming, we can't trust anybody, and mm-hmm. don't ever let your two-year-old sit on grandpa's lap. That would be horrible. <laughs> I don't want that. I want people to be smart and raise their antennas, and when they notice something, they actually give it some credence instead of just dismissing it because, oh, whatever I felt for five seconds, or the way that that person looked or touched my it can't be true because it's the school teacher, it's the priest, it's the, mm-hmm. you know, the favorite person at the community center. It's, it's my brother. It's my, my dad, my grandpa. You know, that's the thing that we don't want to look at it. It's too close to home. And that's why this, this absolute epidemic continues. You know, it's, people don't well, want to see it. 
The, Too close. So you, you keep referring to him as a master manipulator. I, I have no doubt he is, obviously, watching the documentary and hearing you talk about it and reading about it. I would say a failure within the documentary, though, is he doesn't. he's not quite positioned as that master manipulator in that he fooled you you were 12 years old. Okay. And he kind of right. fooled your parents, but I, I, I have to say I don't think the documentary did a great job in articulating if, in fact, your parents were really duped. I don't know if I'm if I'm articulating that correctly. I agree with you. No, I, okay. I agree with you. It's really it's really hard to tell a seven-year story in 90 minutes. Sure, sure. But there are some main... I hope that we get to talk about this a lot more, like with, with people like you that have such, you know, uh, an audience and an influence, mm-hmm. because it really is important that we fill in a lot of the blanks and the gaps that are... Right. So, I mean, just so, let me just give a little, because I'm going to give some, true. sorry, Jim, I'm going to give in the preamble here, which I'll tape later. I'll give the whole plot. Most people have seen it, but essentially, you know, okay. you go, you get kidnapped, and then it's almost positioned when you're watching a documentary... You go, you get kidnapped, you're back, and your mom has an affair with him. So I'm watching mm-hmm. it and thinking, what, this woman, what the, you know, what the hell is she right. doing? Like this, you know, but it, and I've read subsequently, and maybe you can talk about it, that's not really exactly how it happened, correct? Right. It isn't exactly how it happened. First of all, from the very beginning, he knew that he was going to target my open arms loving, everybody counts. That's the kind of family I had, the kind of parents I had. They were very non-judgmental. They were very loving. They were very open-hearted. And he just knew these people are going to be probably easier to manipulate than some other people might be. You know, so we're a little more streetwise or a little more whatever. So first of all, the targeting that happened. He targeted me because I was the perfect type. I was going to stay tiny and little and a little girl for a long time. I didn't I, when I graduated from high school, I was five feet tall and 90 pounds. I had just barely hit puberty, like two months before I graduated from high school. So I was this tiny little wisp of a, of a little girl for many years. So he, he, I was his perfect type. He could, I don't know how they know, but they know. And then I had the perfect parents because they were kind and open-armed and, sure, come on over to our house. Let's have dinner, bring your family. I mean, that's who I had for parents. And so, yeah, they know how to target the right people, first of all. Secondly, I, I think there were things left out of the documentary, like the fact that my dad did call the sheriff's department the very night that we didn't come home. But he was not looking for a missing child. He was looking for a car accident with his best friend right. and his daughter. And we had been horseback riding many times before. I'd been horseback riding with Birch Tolls and his oldest son, who was, who was the kid I had a crush on, right? I had a crush on his oldest son mm-hmm. because we were the same age. And we had been horseback riding with him before. I mean, again, there's been hundreds of experiences with this man and his family for th- almost three years before this kidnapping took place and the abuse started. And so all that grooming and those seeds that were planted during that, that period of time I think are going to be the next important conversation around it because that was left out. They called the sheriff's department saying, describe the car. Birch Tolt's wife is standing there at, at the house like, where are they? What's happened? And so they tried, but there hadn't been a reported accident. And they said, well, this is where they were going. I, I, I mean, he had somebody he was meeting with about some furniture thing because he owned a furniture store, and then they were going to go horseback riding out in this, but we don't exactly know the address because they'd never been, but we'd been. Me and and his son Mm -hmm. had been with him on horseback riding excursions before, and so that's left out that they did call, and then when they finally, another day passed, and 
his wife was calling all of their family and, hey, have you seen, you know, Birch B? Has he shown up anywhere? And no. So a day goes by. And then the next day, that morning, Saturday, my mom finds it. And again, we're talking, we don't have Google. Our phone is hooked to the wall. We have some yellow pages and white pages back in the day, but very few. She finally finds a number for the FBI in Butte, Montana, and it's closed for the weekend. And so she's like, we didn't know what else to do, (laughs) but we left the message on some old school, some sort of machine. And then when the message finally made it back to the Pocatello uh, division of the FBI, which my parents didn't even know there was one in town, then they got an agent on Monday who showed up at our house on Tuesday and said, I hear your child's missing. And they're like, well, we think they've been in an accident. They're not looking for a missing child. This is their best friend with their, their daughter. He's like a second dad to me. And they literally have absolutely zero thought that he kidnapped her. I mean, that's what the, I mean, they were like, oh, no, I, no, that couldn't be possible. And then by the time that a few more days go by and the FBI agent is saying, do you think he could be a pedophile? And my parents are like, what's a pedophile? They've never heard the word. And even the agent said. The agent in the well, documentary says it. Right, correct. Yeah. These, but I remember right. from my FBI manual that there are people that are like, you know, they, they, they target a child and they, they have mm-hmm. sexual designs on a child. And my parents are like, oh, no, there's no way. No, like a child molester? No, he couldn't be. And everybody felt that way about him. Not just my mom and dad, but the whole neighborhood, but, the whole congregation. But I guess my point is, so after that, though, after that happens, there's still relationships after that. Like, So when you talk to your mom years later, do you say to her mom, why did you get in this relationship why? with this guy after yeah. this happened? I mean, that's, you know, a natural question. Yeah. Yes, I do. And so here's, here, and in the book, it really lays it out. You okay. see how that grooming happened and the manipulation happened over all those years. And so this is what happened when my mom, who only who only fell into his sexual clutches three times, it makes it sound in the documentary like she had this torrid affair for eight months. She didn't. But anyway, she went up to meet with him in Ogden, Utah, because he, because she, he would call her three and four times a day. I mean, at the family phone, right? Because that's all we had. We didn't have cell phones. And he would call, and you don't know who's calling. You don't have caller ID. She'd pick it up, and it'd be him again. She'd be like, you got to quit calling because, you know, my dad does not want us to have a relationship with you. You're not allowed back in our home. And he's like, well, Bob is just being ridiculous. I mean, we're best friends, you know. And my mom is like, well, we're not, and we can't because they're going to press charges at the state and the, the federal government. You're, you're being charged with kidnapping. And even though we signed these affidavits because they threatened to take us away from our parents, that's his attorney, that's why they did it, four days later, they, they retracted their affidavits. That's not in the documentary either. So, so anyway, so back to your original question. Yeah. So my mom keeps asking him, the only thing that bothers me you know, B, is why would you have her married to you? What does that mean? He said, if you'll come to Ogden, I'll tell you all the details. So finally, my mom decides I'm going to I'm gonna basically lie to my dad and tell him I'm going to go visit my, my grandma, her mom, and I'm going to, and instead she goes and meets with B and says, okay, I have to know because pretty much all the other things, I know you had a mental breakdown. Everybody at church has been saying, you know, you're not going to press charges, are you? Because what will his wife and his five kids do? Back in the day where women didn't have a career, she, she couldn't have supported those kids and family. And everybody at church is like, 
he's a great guy. He just had a mental breakdown, and he didn't hurt her. So it's not just my parents. It's everybody in the community loves this guy. Right. She goes down to Ogden to meet with him uh, to find out, tell me about this marriage certificate. And I said, well, she wasn't there. I wasn't there. I paid somebody to stand in for us to get married so that I could bring her back. He said, Marianne, I don't want Jan. I want you. You're the person. We've had an, an, an unspoken infatuation with each other from day one, which was true. My mother had fought those feelings of being attracted to him since day one. And he said, Marianne, every time I would see Jan in the motorhome, it was like looking at you. Every time she'd cook a meal, I'd think about you and our life together. Every time this would happen, I would think, oh, I just wish it were Marianne. I'm in love with you, but you wouldn't go with me because you won't leave Bob. You won't leave Bob and, 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 and come, you know, get divorced. My mom was like, well, no, I, 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 I have a family and I love my kids and, and this is, it's, you know, not the right thing to do. Well, she stayed too long. You know, then pretty soon he's touching her leg, and then pretty soon they're kissing. She let him, and then she said, "You know, and from there, there was just no turning back." And I ended up sleeping with him that one, that one time, and then two other times over the course of the next few months that it happened. And she said that the thing about it is, is that all of us girls were begging our mom because our dad wants nothing to do with him. He's threatening to divorce my mother if she takes us down to to see the family because they had all moved. By this time, they had left the Hocatello and had moved to Ogden. And she, 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 but we're begging her. We want to see our friends. I mean, me, Karen, and Susan, we all had a best friend, too. Not only was I begging her because I knew I had to continue the mission, but I was also begging her because I loved Gail. I loved his wife. I loved his kids. I mean, we were best friends. Right. And so we're, the girls are, are putting pressure on her. So she's like, Bob. I know you don't want us to see them, but I'm taking the girls, and we're going to go down, and we're going to see Gail and the kids and just spend a little bit of time. We'll be back tomorrow. We're just going to have an evening, whatever. And so that happened eight or nine times throughout that eight months. But her time with him alone only happened those three times. And so, and I say only, and to anybody else, you're like, it doesn't matter if it happened once. She's a you know crazy person, right? I understand that, but I don't think people really can put themselves in that place because she still has no idea that he has hurt me. I am denying every single thing. They're sending me to be examined by a doctor. The doctor's like, there's no sign here. Of course, it's in the 70s. They don't have the same stuff they have today. You would be able to tell, even if the abuser is gentle, you would be able to tell that there had been abuse, but not then. They don't have the instruments they have today or the kind of testing that they had, and I'm denying it. I'm like, I never told anybody anything until I'm almost, I mean, after my 16th birthday is really when it all came out. Does it, and I'm still 13. I'm 13 at the time and begging to go see them. Does it bother and, you that, that the perception now is that they were like lousy? I mean, you know, mo, I'm sure you saw it on Twitter. I mean, most people think, most people think they're the worst parents who ever lived, you know, that must. Yeah. Oh yeah. It bothers me a lot. Of course. It's in fact, that's what I, that's what I was feeling those first three weeks after it came out. I was like, why did I let them do this? Why did I, why did we tell this story? You know, because to me, I mean, if I had not had the parents that I had, I never would have survived when I finally figured out that it had all been a hoax and a lie and that he had manipulated me and, and, and brainwashed me. And then over the next couple of years, realized what kind of a manipulator and, a groom, and the grooming that had taken place with my parents. 
and then to have people say these horrible things about my parents, it was very hard. But it only lasted for about three weeks, and then it was really my mother. She's the one that said, she said, I know, honey, and you don't have to protect me. I understand why people would be angry with me. I'm angry with me. And she said, because I didn't see it and because I was weak and I fell into the clutches of somebody that I was highly attracted to, but as soon as I, as soon as your dad said, I'm filing for divorce and I was served with those papers, it woke me up and I saw him in a different light. And after that point, after those eight months, because you have to remember, there was 20 months that went by between the first kidnapping and the second. People don't get the timeline. They, they think these things happened within weeks of each other. They didn't. This all unfolded very slowly over time. And so she's like, as soon as I, as I got those papers and I went to visit my mom and my sister, who loved my dad, I mean, my whole Buck family, my mom's family, they all adore my father. And my mother just looked at me. My, this is my mom talking about my grandma. And she just looked at me and she said, I don't know what you've done, Marianne, but you better go home and fix it because you will never, ever find a man like Bob again. He is just, you just wake up, basically, is what my grandma said. And of right. course, still, nobody knows what he's done to me. But my mother, after talking to my grandma and her and her sisters, my her sister Nadine and Eileen, who both just said, you, you have got to, you got to get your head out of the sand because we think that this other person is destroying your family for no good reason. We don't know the details or why, but for no good reason and go home and fix it. And when she got home like four or five days later, I mean, she just looked at my dad in the doorway and literally that scene in the, that you see in the documentary Mm -hmm. where they just fell into each other's arms and started the ball. That's true. That's really what happened. And they both were like, my mom was like, I've been so stupid. I, I know that he, 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 I don't know why, but, but we've, we've been completely manipulated by this man. And, and up until three days ago, I thought I was in love with him. And they just, from that point on, they were united in their efforts to keep me away from him, to not see the family. And, and it was, it was me screaming and yelling that I wanted to go to Jackson Hole and I wanted to go, you know, and that they were crazy thinking anything had happened because nothing had happened. And and it's just, it's really amazing what your child will do to protect their family. That's another reason why people miss it because their children don't tell them. I had amazing open communication with my parents for 12 years. And then I told them nothing because if you can threaten the child in the right way, and you can also, on the other hand, reward them at the same time. And then you add that element of brainwashing in my case where I thought I was being watched by some extraterrestrials all the time and they could read my mind. Your kid is not going to tell you. You can ask them point blank to their face and they are not going to say, oh, yeah, Uncle Henry, he keeps putting his hands down my panties. Do you... They're not going to tell Right? You no, no, sure, sure. Uncle Henry has rewarded them for not telling and he's threatened them. He's blackmailed them, sure. Oh, well, if you tell them, and that's what I'm saying, is yeah. that this is the message. Right. Do you, uh, so, you know, I guess and one of the other obvious takeaways, and I'll just ask it, I guess, and, I, and your dad, you said, passed away this past November, I had read, and again, so sorry about yeah. that. Do you yeah. do you think that the other scene that's obviously the big takeaway scene is your dad with, with B. Yeah. Do you, right, when you watch, yeah, yeah, do you, do you mm-hmm. think that your dad lived a, a closeted life, or was this? I mean, it just seems no, as a man. I don't. As and, a, I'm, and I'm, 
I'm very certain that he did not live a double life or a different life. My, well, you can understand the question, I'm sure. Identical twin brother. Yeah. But, but I understand why people can think that. Of I course. totally get it because then Birch told, accused him of that in court. Right. You hear Birch told's voice. Those are things in the documentary that I remember when I saw the cut the first time. I was like, please take that out. Please take out that part where Birch told is saying this. But the master manipulator and liar is not telling the truth, but people will take it away as if that's the truth, Mm -hmm. because it was said in court. But they didn't. They didn't take it out. (laughs) I was very upset. But but there you go. That's how life goes. I I still wanted the story to be told, and my dad did too. And I, I was shocked that he had been so honest in his interview with the filmmakers, because we all did them privately. We, we weren't in the room with each other, but my sisters and I have talked about it. Like, we never thought Dad would. We told him. He didn't have to. It was a one-time thing. It was, it was dumb, but both, but both Birch told and my dad grew up with, my dad had an identical twin brother and cousins and farm life, and same with Birchfield, talked about his life on the farm. And basically what Birchfield said to him, he's like, well, it's nothing worse than we've done with our, with our brothers and our cousins on the farm. And that's the truth. I mean, you know, boys will be boys. And my dad said, but I wasn't a boy. I was a man, and I acted like a teenager doing something that I have regretted my entire life and that I will take to my grave. And I, and I hope that if there is a judgment, bar that I can somehow be forgiven for that. Those are the honestly, because I, I mean, your you spirit, know. I want this last thing I want to ask you in a second, because you're so, you seem so upbeat and optimistic and your mom and, and your sister, the one who, who seems to have the most anguish when you watch them speak and takes it the hardest and is most emotional, the hardest ones to watch for me are, and especially now knowing what's, that he's not there, is your dad. I mean, you could yeah, tell he, I mean, just, true. you know, it just seemed like he was still really, hey. really anguished over the whole thing. He really did. And I think we all have. It's just that my dad had never really only had talked to me, my mom, my sisters, you know, briefly. Didn't It wasn't something he wanted to talk about. Sure. And I think that we were all waiting for all of us to be ready. I don't think if we had been approached to do this documentary 10 years earlier, I don't think we would have done it. Because my dad and my sister Karen, both are more private people. They're really... You know, they're just, they just weren't ready. But then all of a sudden, everybody was ready. So the timing of all of that, because we, we look at that, and I think it's just because he had had less time talking about it. He'd never talked publicly to anybody about those things, just to us and to his church leaders, because he wanted to repent and feel like, you know, he could go on with his life. He was such a good man. And I mean, hundreds of people out the door for three hours at his funeral. He was just a generous kind, loving person. And, and so those that know him, this was very hard. This actually, because a lot of my cousins and extended family and even his, his, um, his sisters and, you know, people, my my uncle had passed away a, a number of years ago, but, but not his two living sisters. They were all like, oh my gosh, why would we, why would you guys do this? I mean, they were all pretty shocked that we, and, and I said, listen, it wasn't that we did it. Dad agreed, and he even, when he saw the documentary, he was so, you know, stoic about it. And and just like, that's the honest truth. I didn't see it. I had no idea that he would manipulate me. It was like, I was stupid. I was acting like a teenager. We were laughing, you know, about this thing. And and, and he goes, I, I don't know why I did it, but I did. And he said, and I've regretted it my whole life. And so, you know, he was... 
she said, I'm ready for whatever they're going to say and whatever's going to happen. And they didn't have to do it. I mean, they, they were so courageous to, to say, it. but he said, this is how manipulators work. They get you to do something that then you, you feel bad about, and they manipulate that. They use that. They get you over a barrel. And they blackmailed my parents in that first kidnapping. That's why they signed that paperwork, because the attorney for Birchfield said, we're going to build a case that you're unfit parents, and we're going to get your kids taken away from you unless you sign these affidavits. You, That's you, why they signed them. You know, you're, you're really, <laughs> and then they retracted it. Right. And then they retracted it four days later. You know, you really, you really are an outlier, though. I mean, you see so many kids who are molested to wind up, you know, doing that themselves or committing suicide yeah. or drug addiction yeah. and alcohol. And you have been, you know, for the last, I don't know how many years, a working actress. I mean, you know, a lot yeah. of credits to your name. And, and you seem to be, at least I'm sure you've dealt with obviously a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. but a happy person, optimistic person. How is that? Yeah. How is that possible? I mean, how do you, I mean, how is that possible? Right. I know. And, and it's a really good question. And thanks for asking. And, and the thing is, I think that you, as, a, as an individual person, have to make some choices in your life that lead you down the path to, to get the help or the healing or the whatever therapy that you might need to help you. But also, you yourself have to make a decision. And that doesn't come easily or overnight. I don't want people to think that, you know, I got to this point with no effort or no, you know, I mean, I've been married and divorced a few times. I've had plenty of things in my life that are less than perfect. And I've done things that I regret in my life, you know? I mean, I'm I'm human. I'm I'm normal in that way, for sure. But the point is, is that I honestly, and again, I I hate to keep going back to this, but I had a, a father who every day was like, isn't it a great day? I mean, that there were certain sayings that were in my home every day. Well, the glass is always half full. It was never half empty in my home. Well, we've got to, we've got to concentrate on the things that we're, we're grateful for. We've got to see the things that are in front of us that we can be grateful for on a day like today, when it's a bad day. I mean, those are the kinds of sayings and the kinds of things that were set in my home every single day. And so I had that positive, like, look for the good, look for the positive. That was already in my DNA from, and that really was my dad and my dad's twin brother. They were funny and they had these sayings and you could go to any one of us cousins and we would all say the same thing. We learned our positive outlook and attitude from our, from our fathers. And it, it was a huge impact in my life that I was able to then go, am I going to choose to see the glass half full or half empty? Am I going to choose to be a victim? the rest of my life when I absolutely know that I can take that big heavy coat off and I can learn from it, I can look at it, I can hang it up on the coat rack. If I need to put it on to feel safe, I can, but I actually do not have to live my life through the eyes of a victim. I can actually create a life that I'm proud of, that I love. I can I can foster great relationships, which I have. I have wonderful relationships, like with my son, my 29-year-old son. He has just been like a rock in my life, and we have this amazing relationship. All of my ex-husbands, I have amazing relationships with them. Well, how many? Well, all. How, are we, are we, how many are? How many are? Three. Three. Three times. Are you done? Are you retired or no? <laughs> I don't know. Are you, are you got somebody in the? In well, the- I'm always happy to. I'm, I can, I'm always happy to set you up. No problem. You play matchmaker today. Yeah, that's what I'm here Honestly, for. If, if the right person came into my life maybe but i i mean i i have relationships with all of these people my stepdaughters super important part of my life 
you know, I, 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 ha- I haven't done it all perfectly, and I'm positive that maybe I would have made different choices in marriage if I hadn't had what happened to me as a kid sure, in course. the background or if I'd been farther along in my own healing process. But at the same time, I don't regret any of them either because I, I had something that came out of every relationship that was very important in my healing process. So it's just, you know, it's weird that I just have the ability to see the things that have gone right, even when somebody else from the outside would look at it and go, well, well, that one went wrong, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through that. I'm like, I'm not. I actually understand all of the good things that came out of that relationship with my first husband, my second husband, and my third husband. I I wouldn't have had my son without my first husband. I wouldn't have had healing in my sex life without my second husband. And I wouldn't have had my stepdaughters and this family experience for my son without my third husband. So it's like, I got something out of all of them. Were you the most overprotective mother in history to your son when he was little? I mean, I'm, I'm not even, that's not judgmental. I, could, I couldn't even imagine how you, how you wouldn't be. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I a little bit. But, yeah. you know, even that, I, I don't know if I just came out to the world in this optimistic, I'm a, you know, that I'm still too trusting. I don't know. But I, I don't think my son would, would call me overprotective. I mean, cautious, did we talk from age five? Right. I remember our first sex talk was when he asked me a question at age five, and we sat out on a driveway. I remember exactly where we were. And, and, and I said, what other questions do you have? You know? And in his little five-year-old way, he asked me all kinds of things. We talked for like two hours. So, Jeez, yes, have yeah. I been somebody that says the right terms, that uses the right terminology, that teaches a child actually what your body parts are called, and actually what is okay for people to do and not do. Yeah, I've done all that from from age five when he asked me his first remote question <laughs> as a five-year-old, not to the point of scaring him to death, but to the point of knowing that he was in charge of his own body and his own life. Now, I'm not dumb enough to think that if something had happened and they, he was threatened that he would have just told me, even though we had been talking since he was five, because I know how that shuts people down. I know right. firsthand. So I had to become smarter as a parent with my antenna completely raised so that if I thought that I remember one time, this is a good example. I was going, I went back to college to finish getting my degree and my little boy, and I'd gone through my first divorce. My little guy's like not even two years old yet, maybe two, might have been two years old. And I'm getting my degree finally. I'm finally graduating from college. I've been off working at Disney World as a singer, dancer, actress. I go back to finish getting my degree and I had him with a babysitter and I walked into their home one time and he'd been there six or seven times and I kind of walked in the front part but I actually walked into the inner part of their house and there was a feeling and it was it was palpable to me I don't know why I had it but I listened to my gut and I thought there is something off in this place there is something wrong here the dad was home and it was during the day Mm-hmm. And he was sitting in this big overstuffed easy chair and just the way all these little kids were kind of around and I just felt familiar, just, felt familiar to you. It felt familiar to me. Yeah. And because I want people to listen to their gut, this is a great example. I never took my son back there to be babysat again. Hmm. And I found somebody else that I felt good about and I never had that gut feeling. Not that you can always trust your gut feelings. I don't want somebody wrongly accused. I could never have, you know, uh, but I do have a police officer. This is important. 
at the, I spoke just recently at a big chamber of commerce meeting. They had invited me to speak. And this police officer that was in the room, when we were talking about, well, what are the signs of grooming? What do we do if we think there's something wrong? And I said, well, you keep a log. I had a police officer years ago say, write down the date, the time it happened, and what you saw or what you felt or the day and the time of how your child acted or what they said to you and went screaming out of the room and leave me alone and slammed their door. No matter what age it is, even those teenage years, write all these things down. And then when something else happens that you think is absolutely like inappropriate, you see it or you feel it or you hear about it, then you go to the police and you, you, you just file a report no matter what. Well, this police officer, that, that was like 10 years ago that some police officer had said that to me at a, at a police department that I was speaking to. Well, this is just like two weeks ago. I had this police officer who stood up and he said, I want to encourage people to file a report no matter what. Even if you don't have a log of four or five things, if you think something is wrong, no matter if you have proof or evidence or anything else, file a report. He said, because even if we go out and investigate and we can't find anything. You know what happens the next time that some other parent files a report from a, another child that you don't know, it's not the same person, and that sits in the same person's file? All of a sudden now we have two people who have filed a report because something maybe benign, but maybe not, has been, has been actually reported. He said, if we have more than one report from people that don't know each other or anything. I mean, that will make a difference in how we actually investigate and start looking into, a re- you know, something that's reported. And I had never really thought about it, but I'm like, if I had known that in my 20s and I had gone back to the Pocatello Police Department and filed a report when I actually was talking about all of this, the second little girl who... Um, right, there was... Sorry, yeah. I, I have some sound in the background. I'm that's okay. Right up here. Um, the second girl, or not the second girl, because there were girls before me that I know of now, but the next girl yeah, be a record, that yeah. he was grooming, yeah, after right. me, if I had filed a report, he had started grooming a nine-year-old girl whose mother was a psychiatric nurse at a leading hospital. He became that mother's best friend, and that nine-year-old girl, he started grooming and, and establishing that relationship before he kidnapped me the second time, 20 months later for the second kidnapping. Jeez. He had met this woman and her nine-year-old daughter because he had moved. His wife had divorced him by this time, and now he's living in Salt Lake, and he had already figured out who his next target was going to be. And that girl, he abused, raped her under her mother's nose. The mother was a psychiatric nurse. I think I said that. Mm-hmm. For nine years, she told a friend at school she was going to kill herself because she hadn't accomplished her mission in life, and her friend's like, what are you talking about? Called the mother, said, this is what she said. She's going to kill herself. And the mother's like, what? And goes to her daughter, drags it out of her, and the daughter's saying, well, I'm going, to, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be killed anyway, and you're going to be killed if I tell you. And she finally got her to tell the story, and he was pro- prosecuted for rape of a child. He was convicted for rape of a child. That was the name of the conviction. And he was sentenced to 10 years. He spent one year in jail now. If I had filed a report as Jan Broberg, who was now probably, this girl was about, what was she? If I was 14, she was like five years younger than me, right? Because mm-hmm. she was nine when he started grooming about, her. Yeah, 19, 20 if years I old. If I had known that and, mm-hmm. and had filed a report in my, in my mid-20s before right. 
he was brought to justice, he probably would have stayed in jail for 10 years. But because I didn't know to do that. And I'm, t- I'm telling you that thousands right. of your listeners don't know that sure. they should do that. Yeah, of course, right. That's just one example Jeez. of stuff we don't know to do. Sure. Nobody gives you a handbook about how to deal with this stuff. Nobody knows. My parents didn't know. They never even had an attorney. They never stepped foot in a courtroom. You know, they're like, we didn't have an attorney. Nobody had given us an attorney. The attorney was appointed to you, to, to the daughter, to Jan Broberg. So parents don't even have advisors. They don't even know what questions to ask. So you go back, and my sister, who is an attorney, my youngest sister, is an attorney, and she said, it's the same way now. She goes, half of the cases that we work with, the parents make all kinds of mistakes because they don't even know the questions to ask. You don't know what you don't know you don't know. And when they're not criminals, they don't even have any idea. They're For the first time, some crime has happened, and they're totally in the dark because they're not criminals. They don't know the system. They don't know the questions to ask. Jeez. Another really important part of this When's, conversation. When does the book come out? The book will be out, I think, in about two weeks. Oh, that's soon. Drop, okay, right? great, great. Yeah, like within the next two to three weeks. Okay, we'll yeah, get you, so hopefully we'll get you back on you at some point. Again, let's yes, do it. <laughs> and we'll and we'll say, well, maybe we'll have some perspective dates on for you. We'll we'll, we'll, get, we'll get some guys out there for you for husband number four. What do you think? A contest? No. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're really it's gonna be perfect. <laughs> you're really any any to be perfect. Okay. Any, any movie roles, TV roles coming up or no? You know, yeah, I actually have been doing a television series called I'm Sorry with Martin Mull and Kathy Baker and Andrea Savage. and, and uh, Tom Everett uh, Scott, right? I think he's in that. Yeah, yes, Tom Everett Scott, uh-huh. yes, yes. Um, I've done a few episodes on that, and and uh, hopefully they'll they'll keep writing me in. You know, you never know, but it was it's a wonderful group of people to work with. I just have loved the humor, and we get to do a little improv. Andrea, who is the show writer, showrunner, mm-hmm. and in the show, starring in the show, she's always so great to say, okay, now let's just, let's just have fun with it. We know what we're supposed to kind of, what we're sort of doing here. And so when you're, when you're sparring with somebody like Martin Mull, it's pretty fun. Right. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. Well thanks. well, thanks so much, and we'll make sure to see you on Dr. Oz. When the book comes out, we'll promote it, and we'll bring you back on if that's okay. Wonderful. Thank All you right. for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Shan. All right. Uh-huh. Thanks again. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.